0: Chase Eckhart grew up literally in a traveling carnival in Alaska. In fact, he comes from an extended family of carnival people. It's in their blood. He says he's drawn to fantastic stories told by amazing people and feels that if you listen to enough interesting people for long enough, you'll end up trying something interesting yourself. So while working at the winter carnival in Alaska, he looked over at his KTM 990, parked in a snowy lot, with studs in both tires as if it were ready for a mission and thought, I should ride that to the Arctic Circle. And that was that. In two weeks, he would be riding the KTM up the Alaskan Hall Road to the Arctic Circle. And for those who know Chase, well, they probably wouldn't have been surprised because in Chase's own words, he's never been able to live normal. And that could have everything to do with all those fantastic stories he's absorbed over the years working at the carnival i'm jim martin this is adventure rider radio stay with us we got a good one for you
1: Thomas, then, Simon van, Simon Page, Bill Bragun, Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman, Simon Thomas, Thomas Lisa Jarvis, Grant Johnson, Graham
0: Jarvis, Smoke, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. It's wind pressure that powers the Moto Breeze Chain Oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets a thousand miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. Motobreeze.com And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliAdv.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters, CyclePump.com.
1: My name is Chase Eckert. I'm from Chugiak, Alaska, and I am a man. Showman,
0: I guess you're not sure.
1: Uh, well, I, I would say showman. Um, I'm I'm technically uh, a safety inspector and operations guy. I run a traveling carnival in Alaska. I don't know how to explain that in any other way.
0: A traveling carnival is—is is that what it is?
1: Yeah, yeah. So think, uh, think state fair. My family's owned the carnival up in Alaska since 1967. So I'm the third generation of operator and I have the pleasure of running that with my family. I've got a brother and a sister and their spouses, as
0: well as my parents, and we all get to work together. It's pretty great. Now, this is a seasonal business, I'm assuming.
1: Yes. Yeah. We run in Alaska pretty much during our summer season through fall for the Alaska State Fair. And we have one spot in the winter time, which is my favorite is for rendezvous. And it just got over. It is the festival that goes along with the Iditarod dog sled race. So we operate our rides in downtown Anchorage at some extreme temperatures.
0: I thought I saw a photo, which is why I asked you if it was seasonal, because I thought I saw a photo of a ride sitting there with snow on the ground. I thought, who goes to a carnival in winter time? But then I'm not from Alaska, though, so I don't know. Oh, it's magical. It's, it's not like anything you've ever been
1: to. We have people from all over the world um, that are there for the sled dog races, which is great. And then we get to bring the lights to downtown Anchorage. And I am very
0: excited to do that. And it's, it's actual rides. People get on and ride in the wintertime.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. This year we had 14 rides, three food wagons and six games. So it's kind of a smaller spot for us, but uh, all the people get to come out. In Alaska, everybody's kind of cooped up. And now they have a reason to come out and put on their furs and walk around and uh, and see a really fun event. Yeah,
0: it wouldn't there be a lot of logistical problems with this. I mean, you've got snow on the ground. You've got people wearing winter clothes. You've got snow which is slippery on any sort of plastic or, or metal or all those sorts of things.
1: Yeah, of course. And the weather it, it could change so much. You know, it could be it could be forty above. It could be ten below. And you never know what your surface is going to look like, and then we have to set up rides on that. So there's torching of the cement. There's uh, there's swapping out lighter weight of oils. There's running special heaters and block heaters and forced air heaters and airline dryers and all kinds of wow. amazing things that we do to get those rides to run. But uh, we've been doing that exact event since 1967, and it it is awesome.
0: Well, yeah, that's wow. That's a lot more than I thought. I I forgot about all the equipment that you've got there running everything has to be taken into consideration. I mean, because you're talking temperatures where, you know, if you leave a vehicle sit, you're going to have trouble starting it a lot of times.
1: Oh, yeah. And you have to shut everything down at night. Uh, We run off of generators as well. So we have to keep our generators preheated. Once we get running, we have to make sure that the rides themselves um, actually get going. And they all have different requirements. They might have a gearbox full of oil. They might have a gearbox full of grease. And those two things are obviously going to operate differently at those temperatures. Mm. So... We, we, we have done a lot of specialized things over a long period of time, and we know what we're doing and uh, and I'm proud of the product we put out.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. So you, you must have some specialty uh, specialties there with that, that no one else would probably have in the world or very few people.
1: Oh yeah, as far as we can tell, we're the only people who operate rides like this. Mm-hmm. Um, other other parks and venues are starting to extend their their season out a bit more, and we do talk to them. Uh, but nobody's going to be operating in in these kinds of temperatures. There, there's no reason for them to. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that, that's
0: incredible. So, I mean, as, as far as you, you you started riding when you were a kid. I, I think you, you got a, a dirt bike or something when you were a teenager, didn't you? I did um,
1: in, let's see, early high school, maybe middle school. I was given like a little CRF 150 and rode that around our property. We just had... I don't know, like eight acres and lots of hills up and down. Alaska has a lot of water. So there's always, there's always a lot of mud. Um, I live near the coast, near Anchorage. And we get a lot of that coastal weather. So it's not, it's not the extreme winters, uh, but we do have wet weather that blows in off the ocean and then a mountain range that it just blows up next to. So the motorcycle was great for the time. Uh, I wasn't always the most studious, in high school. So it got taken away quite a lot. Um, (laughs) as punishment, it was there. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, and so I, I was without it for long periods of time, but that is kind of what got me into that. And I always really loved small engines. So I have had that. I've had a trail 90 and a Vespa and eventually it led me to big bikes obviously via watching Long Way Around. Um, and I, I actually watched that trip a bit differently, I feel like, than other people down in the States because he came through my hometown. Did you
0: see him when he came through your hometown? Oh, no, I wish I would have. That oh, was, that was what, 2004? I was, I was 15 years old. Oh, I see. So you weren't interested at that point or you didn't know about it at that point?
1: Oh, I had no idea. But then when I went to the motorcycle shop it was in Anchorage is kind of our, our local adventure bike shop. Um, I saw this motorcycle wheel and tire sitting there on display. I was like, oh, this is Charlie Borman's motorcycle wheel and tire. Who's, who is that? Who's Charlie Borman? Hmm. And, uh, and so we have a little piece
0: of that right there in my hometown. And is that what's inspired you to get into adventure riding? Cause there was a point here where in your story where you kind of got away from riding as many of us do.
1: Yeah, it, it was that it was watching that. Um, I was into overlanding for long periods of time before that, I guess, uh, back then it was just kind of like fancy car camping in California and the Southwest. And I built up uh, a little four by four and I drove it from Alaska down the PCH to Mexico and then back up to Canada and then over to Florida and back to Texas. And over a number of years, I put a lot of miles on, uh, it was an Isuzu via cross. Um, which is kind of a, a funny little four by four. And then I moved back to Arizona during the winter time and got my, my first uh, what I would call a big dual sport or enduro style bike and started just camping off of it.
0: You said Arizona, you said Alaska. So what what's the deal here with Arizona and Alaska?
1: Oh, my, uh, my uh, stepdad, his family lives down here in Arizona and so we usually just came down here for vacation. Um, in 2007, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer mm. and we moved to Arizona so she could be close to the Mayo Clinic. And I started my, my college here. And uh, she's doing very well, by the way. And yeah. that was how we started living during the winters in Arizona. Uh, I moved around in my early adulthood And eventually came back to be close to family. My family all here is also in the carnival business. So if you've ever been to any major event, uh, pretty much in the South United States, my family is probably involved.
0: Oh, is that right? It sounds like you've got a a great life there. I mean, summers in Alaska where you you get unlimited sunshine, winters in Arizona. You, You just mentioned, though, about your family all being in the carnival business. But like, what would that look like for, from an outsider? Because like, I would picture there's just like so many different personalities here.
1: There's, there's definitely that. My, my stepdad has like 11 or 12 brothers and sisters, um, all from the age of 50 down to the early thirties. So I have some uncles that are younger than I am and it's it's basically like farming, ranching, and equipment. We all move equipment around. We work on equipment together. Uh, we talk about industry stuff. Of course, there's the all the fun that goes with fairs, festivals, and events as well. But uh, for the most part, it's it's like running a ranch. You know, you may, you make hay when there's when there's sun, and then you put that hay back into the farm, and we spend all of our money back on on equipment to keep doing
0: it. Right. Yeah, I, I can picture that. I mean, I can't imagine. I've often thought of that when I look at carnival stuff and thinking because first of all, it's so specialized. I it mean, it's not like you're going to see very many of these things around. If you'll ever see another one around at all for the average person, and then looking at the mechanisms of it, I'm thinking, who designs this, and then who maintains it? But but it sounds like it's you.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a lot of people like me. Thankfully, everybody in my family likes to do different things. So my brother is a fantastic painter. My brother-in-law is a fabricator and welder. I'm our electrician as well as safety guy. Um, I'm a third-party inspector for other theme parks as well. And we all seem to work really well together. Our our personalities match up nicely. so, So that is pretty cool. It's fun to work with your family towards a common goal.
0: Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, I I think that's amazing alone, but I think also the business that you're in, there's a certain excitement to it. The summertime is like, go, go, go. And then all of a sudden it just stops and you've got this downtime in the wintertime.
1: Oh, exactly. And that downtime we use to obviously do maintenance and stuff. I have a regular 40 hour job when we're not open, which to me feels like a part-time job. And I get to take time off. I get to do kind of whatever I want. I have lots of paid time off if I would like it and I can go on fun trips. I can schedule ahead of time. And if I needed to, I could take, uh, I don't know like two months to go somewhere as Mm -hmm. long as somebody can cover what I'm doing. And it's, it is really nice. I am very blessed.
0: Except for the summer for Alaska, you can't go then.
1: Oh no, not at all. So I, I have had to specialize in riding places in the winter and just dealing with other people's weather. Um, you know, California in the winter isn't as nice as California in this summer. Uh, Mexico in the winter on a, on a beach is uh, not as pleasant as you would think it is sometimes. You know, you you still get the cold wind and and water and, uh, and even fall in Alaska can be pretty brutal. I'll, I'll tell you, winter in Alaska is pretty brutal too, riding a motorcycle.
0: <laughs> yeah. you're, so you have all winter basically to go and do things you want. And that's what you're talking about. You've done a lot of camping off your bike. Can you talk a bit about that?
1: Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of at this cool little four corners area. If I want to go to Nevada, Arizona, California, Mexico, I'm literally a, a day ride from Mexico. I've taken one day from my house and made it to the bottom of Sonora just to spend a night on a beach. Um, it, it's a cool spot. And obviously the trails just go on forever. You've got all the, the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management land around us that it has infinite amounts of trails and coming from Alaska to be able to drive somewhere in a day is still feels like magic to me. Um, I can go up to the mountains in Flagstaff and Prescott. They've been getting a lot of snow and and water this year, or I could go to Northern California. I think it's like a nine hour ride from here. Um, Again, Mexico, I spent a month in Baja last year. And it, it, it just feels like when you're here and you can get on the highway, you can kind of go anywhere you want to. Mm -hmm. And then you're just a a, a little detour from getting to some really amazing off-road stuff that really is, is underutilized. And it gets me kind of wherever I need to go. If I need some solitude, which I already live in the country, so I have a lot of solitude, but it, it, it's sweet because I can go into the woods, spend a night in the woods, go into town get a cup of coffee, meet with some locals, hang out, and then uh, get on the highway and be home. And uh, that might only be a three-day weekend. Or I have that option that I can take a week or two off and, and make something a little, more, um, uh, a little more lengthy if need be.
0: What kind of so, rider are you? Do, do you look for the dirt or, or do you, what do you look for?
1: Well, I've got, I've got three bikes. Uh, one of them's kind of broken right now. It's up in Alaska. That's my big 990 And it's sitting on a trailer in Fairbanks right now, um, which that's a whole other story. And my primary bike is a KTM 690 Enduro with luggage on it. I like to go down fire roads, some two track and make it to where I can set up a really nice camp, um, eat in town if need be, but I really enjoy cooking and I'm, I'm a very simple eater and hang out and see something. So I would say. I prefer to ride to a place I've never been to, have a hike, have a walk around, go back to town, maybe for some some meals and uh, go maybe see some friends. I love making friends. If anybody's listening to this and wants to be my friend, reach out. Um, It's all about the people.
0: That is great, wow, that is great. I wonder if that's from you growing up in the carnival. I mean, because you're meeting so many people all the time. I mean, you just have to see like hundreds and hundreds of people come through every season and talk to people all over the place. I wonder if that's what that's from.
1: Oh, there's definitely that, but it's actually mostly from growing up in Alaska. I grew up in a, in a tourist destination and I see people having their Alaskan adventures and I'm doing air quotes right now. And I just wish that they would have reached out and talked to me and I could have made it so much better with a slight amount of information. And I, I just know that there's somewhere, someone in each of these places that has a little crumb of info for me that will make my trip so much better. And then I get to share it with them. So we all feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, it it's just having that insider information. And I, I love places and I love people. Um, the carnival definitely helps. I I'm I'm a little more gregarious than others, but um, but I just know that that if I if I have a person there to enjoy it with, that it will be better for everybody.
0: How's that work out for you as far as going meeting people? Do people take to it well?
1: Oh, yeah. So I prefer to go alone. Uh, I like to run at my own pace. Uh, I like to kind of choose the places where I go. And also people are so much more willing to reach out or offer assistance. Uh, When I was in Mexico, I had two other guys with me and they're absolutely fantastic guys. One of them, I actually sailed to the Bahamas with and it changed the trip where we did a lot more extreme stuff. Um, we went places that I wouldn't have gone on my own for sure. Like I, we did probably the Northern 400 miles of the Baja 1000 from Mm -hmm. 2019, including like getting stuck in a dry lake bed. It was not dry anymore, but I was stuck there for, for a couple days without food and water. And I wouldn't have done those things, but also people aren't as willing to reach out. If you have three English speaking, men hanging out together, it creates a little bubble that the locals aren't willing to attempt to penetrate. Mm -hmm. It also doesn't allow me to learn to speak the language or learn to involve myself in their culture because at that time, they're not just characters in my story. I'm now just a fly in the wall in their life. And that's what I want, I want to expand my own horizons and expand my own idea of the world by enjoying life from the perspective of the people who live there. Um, I don't remember who said it, but it was something like, "It's hard to hate people if you travel a lot because you just find people all over the place that you know are are fantastic." Mm-hmm. Um, it's easy when you don't actually know what. Other people have going on, and i would I would encourage everybody go to Mexico, be safe about it, but um enjoy your time there. It's a really fantastic place, and I never felt uh, out of place or
0: in danger. so you describe yourself as an adventurous person. What does that mean? Um,
1: I grew up in unique circumstances. When you can, when you can be born and you already have it, oh, I grew up in a traveling carnival in Alaska and none of that is to my credit. Everything else, you just kind of have to one up yourself. Um, I, I grew up on Hemingway. I grew up on uh, Foster Huntington and I had one uncle who was, uh, instrumental in, making me want to step outside the box of things that are normal. My brother actually, um, he would describe me as peculiar. It's like, you just can't ever do the normal things. Like you can't live in a house. You can't. um, I'm currently living and sitting in my Airstream trailer. You, you, you can't just do what everybody else does. And I guess you do that enough and your normal is other people's abnormal or peculiar. And that leads you to try new things.
0: Well, what do you get from that? Like, I mean, it almost sounds like, you know, you would just do it sort of to be different, but you, there must be something more other than just the thing to be different. I mean, like you said, you were, you're born into a carnival. You've, you've, you've got something right there. What, what do you get from chasing down these, these odd things that you look at?
1: My mom would argue that it's just a checklist of things that I feel like I have to do. Um, But I would say that it's, I'm trying to explain it. Um, It is something that I can bring up and kind of breach a conversation with people. And then they want to ask questions. And then I can, leads me into a conversation with people, which is, which is fantastic. Um, It also expands your horizons as far as the people you get to meet and the things you get to see. Um, and and just being normal doesn't really do it for me. Uh, I, I've tried. I, I was a police officer, and that was only fun as long as I was doing fun police officer stuff and not any of the paperwork or um, any anything that went along with that. Uh, I was, a, let's see, I was a manager for a roofing company for one week. I, every once in a while, I, I get a wild hair and want to try something normal, but it just doesn't do it. I, I wonder if I'm like a little bit broken and just have to continue doing these things.
0: Um, How do you become a police officer when you're when you've got the carnival to do?
1: Well, during COVID, we weren't allowed to open, so we were closed for two years, which Uh-oh. was really uh, really a hard time. Yeah, and I had always wanted to do some sort of service, so I was living in New Orleans at the time. And I applied for, (laughs) I applied for the FBI, the fire academy and the police academy at the same time. And I said, all right, whichever one (laughs) accepts me first. (laughs) And I became a a patrol officer for Gretna, Louisiana, for the city of Gretna. Um, I was the class president and I had um, a really interesting time there for sure. And then my family called me up and they said, the carnival's back on, we want you back.
0: I was like, all right, cool. Well, I'll hook up my trailer and come back home. <laughs> is that a call that showmen cannot resist? Like when you get that phone call, no matter, you're, you're a police officer then, you could be on a career. When you get that phone call, is, is it just like, you know, whistling for a dog that's trying to come back? You got to get back?
1: Well, there, there was a lot more complex things that was going on at the time. Um, obviously family, it was, it was great to just hear from your parents. Hey, we we want to have you and you know, you're wanted here, you're needed. And, you, and I was so far away from everybody else at the same time I was going through uh, a divorce and it was just nice to be able to go back with family. So yeah. and actually the, the divorce was the catalyst for, for all of the most recent weirdness <laughs> <laughs> in, in, in good ways. So yeah, it was, it was hard for a while.
0: Did you get divorced during COVID?
1: I did. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I got back from sailing on the Bahamas just as the, uh, as the lockdowns were coming in, in place. I uh, docked my boat back in, in New Orleans and uh, I went up to Alaska for a quick contract. Uh, It was uh, just a one month because I was trying to live apart from my family at the time. And uh, by the time I came home, uh, I was asked for a divorce. So yeah, it was, uh, it was a really tough time.
0: Yeah, that would be. You just casually mentioned coming back with your boat. That's a, that's a whole trip you did with the boat. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes. I, I decided in the winters, I didn't want to live close to family. And I feel like that was when I was being uh, young and stubborn. And I purchased a boat. It was a 40 foot motor yacht. It was a, a big, big boat. It, it wasn't very nice, but. I bought it and I didn't know how to sail, but I knew engines and the the boat next to me was kind of beating against the docks. And I was mad at the guy and, and I passive aggressively lashed out and said, well, if you're not going to fix it, I'm going to fix it. And he goes, okay, cool. Well, here's my credit card. You can fix whatever you want on the boat. Just, you know, um, and I said, okay, well, if that's the case, I'm going to learn to sail it. So I learned to sail that boat and then sold my, my, uh, my power boat. And Talked this guy into selling me that boat, which at the time was called Esprit de Corps. Corps is in like coronary. He was a heart surgeon. And he gave it to me at a really fantastic price. I put uh, a year's worth of work into it. Uh, relaunched her and named her just Esprit for spirit. And the first time I left Lake Pontchartrain was on my way to cross the Gulf towards the Bahamas. Um, wow. And I left, I made it, uh, to Destin before a huge storm blew in. I broke some rigging and re-rigged, uh, left Destin and I didn't hit, uh, land again until Miami. Um, yeah, Miami and Key, Key West first, Miami after that, up and down the coast a couple times and made my jump over to, uh, to the Bahamas, hitting the, uh, Bimini, about a day later. um, And then I spent five months sailing the berries uh, south of the Abacos, um, the Ragged Islands, and up and down, you know, Grand Bahamas. And then turned around and came back. So I ended up solo sailing about 5,000 nautical miles. And, um, and of course I was married at the time. She, she rode along, but, uh, but couldn't sail and then got, Back home, docked the boat, and then the world shut down.
0: Wow. That sounds like quite the adventure. So is is the boat gone now from your life?
1: Yes. Yeah. I sold the boat. Um, I feel like I can only have one extreme hobby at a time. (laughs) Uh, and also there's not the best sailing in Arizona. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I can, I can imagine you're, you're a little shy of some, some places to go sailing in Arizona. I get that. Yeah. So you're living in Arizona. You've got a, um, you mentioned you've got a trailer.
1: Yes. Yeah. I have a beautiful 28 foot Airstream, um, off grid now on my big pad here. We have a 40 acre ranch as a, as a family together and, and we actually all live together. And from here, you know, I, I can take care of it. And they can help take care of me. And this is kind of my, my launching point for all of my, my recent adventures. Wow, so, that's
0: great. So, so Winters, you're it, spending there in your Airstream. What, what is the deal with the Airstream? Why is it so popular? Why, why do people love this trailer?
1: Uh, well, they last. And the resale is fantastic on them. This is my fourth one. Uh, I, I do enjoy them. They're made better. Um, they, they just don't fall apart under, under heavy use just for the fixtures, everything about it.
0: They, they are a little cramped. They can be, but I spend most of my time outside. Wow. Uh, It sounds, I know people seem to love them and, and, and I think they look neat, but I've never had one. I've actually never been in one before, but I've always wondered what the, what the deal is. Why do people love them so much? Because it seems like when someone has one, they're real diehards. Yeah. And also if you tell
1: people, I live in a trailer, people are like, oh, that's kind of weird. If you tell people I live in an Airstream full time, they go, oh, that's, oh, that's fancy. It's that's nice. It's <laughs> a different level. Right. Right. I get that. Yeah.
0: You yeah. did mention there the earlier, uh, the Iditarod, which maybe you could talk about that and tell us, tell us exactly what that is. But so I'm curious about you going up there, working the winter carnival for the Iditarod. So just start with enlightened people about the Iditarod.
1: So the Iditarod Sled Dog Race is a race uh, on sled dogs from Anchorage to Nome, recreating the original serum run where teams of dog sleds moved serum to help a bunch of sick children in a hospital in Nome, and they eventually saved all those lives. They made a a few movie adaptations of it, including a cartoon series on Disney called Balto, and that, uh, that event has the ceremonial start in Anchorage. So we have the ceremonial start. We have, uh, the sled dog pull events where they pull heavy weights. We have the fur auction, which is awesome because the original fur rendezvous is where all the fur trappers would bring their, their goods in from, uh, from wherever, and they would sell them to the fur buyers. So it's a really, really interesting event. Um, and it's right there in downtown Anchorage.
0: Well, and this, this you're, you're talking about, it's the diphtheria run. That, that's what it was. That's what sort of reenacting. Yeah,
1: I, I was trying to like, I don't know. I was like, it's definitely not yellow fever.
0: <laughs> <laughs> diphtheria, and the thing is with it is like, it's, you know, it was the sled dogs that, that saved all those lives. I mean, that's really amazing. So that's, that's why they do this Iditarod.
1: Correct. So they have the Iditarod trail and that, the, the race commemorating the serum run was started by a man named Joe Reddington. And they, they it from Anchorage. The the actual start is out on big lake, which is, uh, is, is close, but it's not, it's not right there, but the ceremonial start where everybody gets dressed up and all the international teams come a lot of, a lot of us and Canadian teams. Um, a lot of Arctic nations, just it, it's, it's awesome to see people from all over the world. Mm. So I, I, I very much enjoy it.
0: And it's not easy, is it? Like this is a serious race.
1: Oh yeah. No, it it is an absolutely serious place. It is, it's, it's life and death through the middle of nowhere and the weather, it can change so dramatically. Last year, everything was glaciated so bad. It was so icy and there's open, just standing water. This year we got just dumped on by snow and, uh, and I guess they did pretty well. So yeah. Amazing what those people do with their teams of dogs. Those dogs absolutely love everything they're doing and they're taken care of so well along the trail. Um, yeah.
0: Fantastic Mm -hmm. event. It's so intriguing. The whole thing that goes on. So there you are set up as your carnival for the Adidarod and you get struck with an idea. Can you talk about that idea?
1: (laughs) Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I noticed one other guy riding around Anchorage on his bike at that time. It's like, man, that seems like a lot of fun. I I don't know what the risks are look like and what that looks like going around. But in winter, in winter. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in February and uh-huh. he's got studs, he's got studs on and he's riding his little KLR around. Of course, it would be a KLR. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, man, what, what does this look like? So I started asking around, I, I talked to two people specifically, um, Oliver Solaro. i I found him on Instagram and he helped me out quite a lot, actually as far as selecting studs, it's like, Oh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to ride around town. Not, not a big problem. Uh, he got me hooked up with grip studs, which they actually sold locally at the, at the motorcycle shop.
0: Right. Right. We we had Oliver on the show many years ago, but, but hang on, back up. How do you get this idea? You're, you're standing there operating equipment or doing what you do. And, and it strikes you that you want to what?
1: Oh, I, I didn't have any idea at this point. I was just riding around town because I thought it was nifty. Um,
0: Oh, I see. So you're just looking for ideas on (laughs) on riding a motorcycle in the wintertime, which is pretty bizarre. I just
1: just happened to have a, had a motorcycle. I had my KTM 990 up there. It fired right up. I had a Continental TKC uh, 70s on it and I took it just out into the parking lot and dumped it, slid around. (laughs) It had way too much power. It was spinning all over the place. I had a smile on my face. I had so much fun. Uh, Our event was going really well. Everything was going as it should. And I thought, man, I've, I've never been to the Arctic Circle before. I should probably ride my motorcycle there. I was like, well, that's going to take like, like a year or something like that to figure out. And, uh, and then actually another new friend, Marco, he's from uh, Poland. Um, he kind of reached out to ask about, about Alaska. He's like, well, what about a route to, to the Arctic, to, to Prudhoe Bay? I said, well, there's kind of only one route. It's the, it's the Dalton the Dalton highway out of, out of Anchorage, Anchorage, Fairbanks, Dalton, whatever, Elliot Dalton. And I was like, oh, that'd be really cool for him. And I'm like, oh, that'd be really cool for me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, when you just said you'd never been to the Arctic Circle and you'd like to ride there, you're talking winter or summer? Uh, I've heard, and I know
1: that there are a lot of bugs and a lot of dust and not a lot of shelter. And it can be pretty miserable during the, uh, during the summer. So I should probably just choose my misery and I would rather be cold.
0: (laughs) Um, You know, hang on. Is that because, is that because you're an Alaskan? Because you're an Alaskan, don't forget that goes to Arizona in the summertime or in the wintertime.
1: Oh yeah. But I've always, I I freak out in the, in the heat. You can dress for the cold generally. I I didn't realize the kind of cold I was going to experience, but you can dress for the cold for sure. There's there's no uh, there's no respite from the mosquitoes and black flies that they have up there. It's it's maddening sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I, I just decided, well, I, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna go in probably a week.
0: You're, um, well, hang on a second. You're gonna go as in you're gonna ride to the Arctic Circle and you're gonna leave in a week? Yeah, well, I didn't have that much
1: time. I had to go back to Arizona. So obviously I had to get it in right now. <laughs>
0: Take a quick break while I tell you about two things. One is an event that you will not want to miss this year. We've got a lot more to talk about with Chase as well. Stay with us. Moto Camp Nerd is a store for motorcycle camping. Ben and Mary Williams have created a unique shop that specializes in motorcycle camping gear. They say that everything they stock is chosen because it works for motorcycle camping packing size and durability they stock brand names like nemo big agnes and sea to summit and they're a real store i mean you can walk in and shop and have a look at their website i mean they've got loads of gear in stock now of course you can order online with confidence because you're ordering from riders just like us ben and mary love motorcycle camping so if you've got questions wondering what's best for your trip Just contact them. They say they're happy to help get you sorted out. Motocampnerd.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Motocampnerd.com. Well, get ready for another great year of shows with Overland Expo. This May 19th to 20th, 2023, in Flagstaff, Arizona, is Overland Expo West. Get trained, get outfitted, and get inspired to explore the world at Overland Expo. Now, this is the show for overlanding everywhere. People come from around the world to see this show each year. This one is held at Fort Tuthill County Park in Flagstaff. It's the greatest collection of overland adventure companies in the world with more than 400 gear vendors, according to Overland Expo. Now, you can outfit your motorcycle for the next adventure. You can test drive bikes from Triumph, Ural, and Royal Enfield, and more. You can camp with your friends at a new moto camp area with day and evening passes. And you can also build your confidence with uh, interactive courses, seminars, training. You can also get inspired with uh, authors, filmmakers, and other travelers hosting workshops. There is so much going on. Get your tickets and camping passes online at overlandexpo.com. And anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Ride. Radio overlandexpo.com. You know, hang on, let me just go back to something you said there because you said about the cold you can dress for the cold, but but you can't really dress for the heat, and, and I think that's so true. And it's something that I, I really want to stop and just take note of right now because it is so true. And um, when you can when you're dressing for the cold, there's there's all kinds of things we can do to keep warm in the wintertime, but when when you got the oppressive heat there's not much you can do. You can't, it's like in the wintertime, you're keeping your body warm. So you're trying to keep your core temperature up. But in the, but in the excessive heat, you can't cool down. And it, and it sort of goes beyond your control. And I think a lot of people don't realize that when they, when they think of hot and cold, you know, the difference between the two.
1: Oh, for sure. I, I didn't realize also that there is an oppressive level of cold as well, though. Um, I, hit, I hit a negative 63 Fahrenheit, which is about that. Uh, Celsius. Things happen with your bike and with your body at those temperatures that there's a certain level of, of cold where you're basically on life support. If you were to, uh, to get out of your clothing for any amount of time or try to do anything, your body's damaged. Um, the metal on your bike gets smaller. My, my chain got significantly smaller. Mm-hmm. I had swapped, uh, we, we can talk about later, but the amount of prep I did to the bike was actually, was quite a lot and things just don't act the same as they do. So it was, it was, and, and your mind doesn't act the
0: same way either. Let's just talk about the idea. So your idea is to, to do what?
1: My idea was to ride my motorcycle from Anchorage to Prudhoe Bay. In the winter. In the winter time, yes.
0: Right. Okay, so you, you're going to ride to the Arctic in the winter time, and you, you think you can do this in a week's prep. How do you set about prepping your bike in a week to do this trip?
1: Uh, well, I, I started by studying the tires because I just wanted to ride around. Uh, I'm trying to find like the secret sauce on studs is tough because you get everything from the old ice racers. that just say, just put screws in it to, you know, the modern guys who are, who are using grip studs. And, and even then, you you don't know the weight of your bike, the power of your bike, the kinds of tires to be used. Um, it's also the off season. So you can't really get all the tires that you wanted and you just kind of have to make do. So I went through, um, two sets of tires, about, oh, sadly, maybe $600 worth of grip studs <laughs> and try, trying to figure this out. Shredding tires because they were too long.
0: Just, ri- just riding around town, you mean, as you're trying to sort out how the bike's going to be prepped?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, just trying to figure it out on, on a very mixed over long distances. That's the other thing. Most people, they, they stud up a bike and, and they go ride them on the lake for just a little small period of time. Mm-hmm. They don't have mixed asphalt, speed, ice, Everything that goes in between, um, plus the weight of the bike. The nine ninety is a huge bike, and it's massively powerful.
0: Yeah, it tears tires um, off in the summertime. It's certainly going to wear out studs very quickly if you're onto it at all. Oh, it was insane. And studs don't like I, I, studs aren't going to grip on the on the asphalt. So kind of ironic, really, because they grip so well on ice, the slippery stuff. But as soon as you get on asphalt, it's kind of like you're on ice with a regular tire.
1: Well, thankfully, there. I, I chose a time when the the temperatures were very low and there was a good amount of ice and I was doing everything I could to stay below 60 miles an hour.
0: Oh, I see. So you've got to build up um, on the roads that you're riding on.
1: Just, just a little bit or, mm-hmm. you know, doing what I can to go onto the shoulder and let them cool off because ultimately how I lost my first tire and lost an entire day was because they got too hot and augured their way in. I had to go back to town, purchase another tire, mount it, restud it with smaller studs. And this was- I don't know, maybe 70 miles away from home. So I, I lost my my first day that way by redoing what I needed to do.
0: You did that in the cold? You, you remounted your tire in the cold?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had everything I needed because I knew if I broke down, then I was probably going to die. So I had my compressor. I had large, large tire irons, um, extra tubes because I'm running tube-type tires, and... um and a power drill with me. I had a nice little lithium, uh, uh, impact driver. Oh, actually it wasn't an impact driver, but a little lithium drill. And I restudded them there, um, on my way back up North.
0: So is it, is this on the trip or are you still talking prep here?
1: No, this is day one. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> so this is day so, one, so, one of the
0: trip. So back to the oh, prep back, though. Back to prep. Back to the yeah. prep. So you, you prepped it, you, you found studs that would work for your tires. Where, where did you turn to for information though? Like, are you, are you just winging it at this point?
1: Kind of. Um, Oliver told me if, if I had any questions, I should ask the snowmobile people. So I went to our local snowmobile shop, uh, which we call snow machines in Alaska. So I'll call it that. Uh, I went to the snow machine guys. I said, well, what kind of oil do I need to be running? Cause my oil is only good to 32 degrees. I went down to an OW 20. Uh, I also flushed the coolant and replaced it with snowmobile, actually, uh, the Bombardier, a snow machine coolant. Mm-hmm. So it would only slush at negative, I think it was 36.4. I wrote down all the temperatures as well on the windshield because I couldn't run any electronics. It would draw too much on my battery.
0: Um, so you wrote down your critical temperature saying that if, this, if it drops below minus 34, that's when your, your coolant starts to coagulate.
1: Correct. But only with my bike not running. So in the mornings, as long as it was above negative 34, I could get started. And it didn't matter what happened during the day. Cause I just left the bike running the entire time. I, see. Um, I wrote down critical temperatures. I wrote down critical mileage as well and a uh, fuel range. Cause I knew that that bike is so bad on fuel. So I, uh, I, I carried five gallons of extra fuel, which got me for a total of about 320 miles. And my checkpoints were at 247 miles.
0: What's, um, what's a checkpoint?
1: Uh, checkpoints are places where I could get uh, fuel and warm up. When you're out on the Dalton, there's nothing between checkpoints. It's just up and down. It's ice road. It's literal ice road, mm-hmm. a road carved out of ice in the in Alaska's interior through the Arctic. And there, there's nothing between uh, Fairbanks or the Hilltop gas station there. And some of the time, uh, Yukon Camp, if you can't make cold foot camp. Uh, These are basically like space stations in the middle of nowhere Mm -hmm. where everything has to be brought in. And they're, they're your lifeline along the road because you you have nothing else.
0: So what else are you prepping on the bike?
1: Uh, I also swapped out my lithium battery for lead acid battery. I kept my incandescent lights because they were warm enough that they would keep it de-iced um, I put an Alaska leather sheepskin seat on because, uh, <laughs> I was sliding around on my, on my seat that I had originally. I put uh, 3M like Solace style reflective tape all over pretty much everything so that I stood out as best I could. Cause it's a black bike. And I had to buy sheets of stick on neoprene rubber that I could stick on the, tank where my knees go as well as where my legs go because when it frosted over my feet and legs were just sliding all over the place
0: let me just jump back to that you said you changed the battery you changed out your lithium battery and can you talk about why you did that
1: i I changed my lithium battery because it it discharges so deeply at at those low temperatures um it it just doesn't perform as well so I, i needed the cold cranking amperage of a, a standard flooded lead acid battery, and that was that was a cheap thing to do. While I was down there, I put a battery heater on it, so I plug my bike in at night. Mm-hmm. It's just a it's a one ten AC heating pad that that keeps the bike or it keeps the battery warm enough so it doesn't discharge, and I can start the bike in the morning. Because that bike doesn't have a kickstart or anything. I, I was one hundred percent reliant on the e start, and that would eventually help me down the way
0: <laughs> the, the lithium is, is a wonderful battery and a lot of people swap them out or are doing that now because of their lightweight but in the cold they have a very high internal resistance and one of the ways to get the lithium battery working in the cold is to actually give some, give it some load for a short period of time and then then take the load off and, and do it another time maybe a couple more times to try and warm the battery up but so so it makes sense what you did was you swapped it out you went to a lead acid battery but even a lead acid battery can lose like 80 percent or more at, at extreme lower temperatures, 80% or more of, of its actual power. So you really got a lot on your plate to deal with. And you did also mention the incandescent lights about that heating up and keeping your lenses. In other words, your headlight lens clear because it's warm, because if you put an LED in, it produces much less heat and you'd end up getting icing and then have to deal with that, which I don't I don't know how you would have to, I don't know what you would do to de-ice it at that point. So, so you're thinking through this really well. I mean, you're really trying to cover all these bases. And I guess this probably comes from your mechanical background. I mean, you understand all this stuff.
1: Yeah. The the bike was one thing. Oh, I also forgot. I I swapped out all of the grease on the bike when I was pulling it apart with Marine grease. And I would highly recommend that. It also operated well when I had to pull things apart when it was that cold. But, um, that being said, the bike was one thing and then getting myself as far as clothing together was, was it's like a chore all on its own. Yeah. What did you do? I I went back to what guys on snow machines do. Um, Mm. I I got a high-speed snow machine helmet, a BRP modular three helmet with an internal mask. And I wore that. I I knew that I didn't want an electric face shield because I didn't want to draw anymore from the battery. I didn't want any heated gear. I did have heated grips um, with nice big hippo hands on them, which I highly recommend. I'm sure they saved my hands. Mm -hmm. And I went with what I would do if I was working or just standing uh, for long periods of time. The biggest problem with being on the bike at those temperatures is wind and that you're not moving at all. You're, you're just, you're just there sucking it up. You can't even move around too much. Mm-hmm. So lots of base layers, lots of trapped air. Uh, my boots were uh, old Arctic mountaineering boots. They weren't snow machine boots, uh, or, or my dirt bike boots or anything like that. They were, I got them secondhand from a good, like, uh, we've got this secondhand um, outdoor gear like consignment shop in town. Nice. And I went there and I wore my, my parka with my Wolverine rough, just like the, the dog mushers wear. I got some big thick snowboard bibs and some thick fleece from, uh, from the fishing industry, some Grunden's fleece. And I really just bundled up so I couldn't move anymore. And, Trapped as much air in as I could without letting any air penetrate around my neck was kind of difficult. Um, so I had a big, actually it was a buff and then a fleece like kind of muff thing that went around, and that's how I rode.
0: And you're not camping; you're 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 going to stay at hotels.
1: No, I was trying to make it easy on myself. I actually never stayed at a hotel. I stayed with uh, a friend of the family. And then, when I kind of had my emergency, I had to find a place in town because all the hotels are booked it's it's a It's a busy place in the winter Fairbanks is and I ended up sleeping on somebody's spare room and in a kind of different situation that I would normally choose really fantastic sweet people but uh it was it was a rugged place to be for sure and I wasn't in the best frame of mind at that time i was I was just super dehydrated. And I I hadn't been eating for a couple days and I made some mistakes for
0: certain. Okay, let's go back though, because you haven't left yet in the the story here. So do you go out and and give your bike a shakedown ride? Do you you put on all this tons of gear you've got and get on your bike and ride it around to see what it's going to be like? I did. I
1: started with... Just local runs because obviously I'm scared. I don't want to lay the bike down, or I don't want to get hit no, by somebody sensible. sliding through something. Or um, so I yeah I, I went on a couple rides. I, I went down the Old Glen Highway out to a, a little town called Iklutna. Um, I rode around the Palmer Valley a little bit. I rode to town a couple days to to go to work while we were still open. So I would I would ride my my motorcycle to work uh, at the carnival. Um, I would let it sit all day long and get really, really cold and then fire it back up again to see how it would run in those temps. And, uh, man, I probably put, oh, about four or 500 miles on it just locally just before I decided it was good. Yeah. And that was just enough time to let the the studs eat their way into the tire and destroy it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What, what do people think when they see you riding the bike around town though, this 500 miles that you did?
1: Well truck drivers love it little kids love it adults like real serious adults pretend that you're not there and pretend like something isn't going on um but really it's all
0: about the truckers and little kids don't you think
1: oh yeah it's it's just completely uh completely unabashed they're not they're not they're not pretending anymore that that cool things aren't cool so i I had a lot of fun (laughs)
0: No, that's, that's really neat. And it's, it's interesting to picture it sitting at the, at the carnival site there for the Iditarod, a motorcycle at the carnival in the wintertime. I mean, it's just perfect to me. It's, a, it's just perfect.
1: Oh yeah. And we had all the patrons coming up and taking pictures of it and it was, it was super fun. It was all studded up. It looked cool, like real Mad Maxi with its shaggy seat cover and it's already a 990. So if you know what it is, people are stoked on it, but yeah, Um, yeah, all the adventure bike riders are, oh man, you're so tough. And you're like, you don't realize that I'm just kind of suffering my way through this. And I'm not tough. I might just be dumb.
0: (laughs) So what do you do? Do do you end up getting to the point you're ready to go and and just take off?
1: I'm I'm ready to go first thing in the morning. I'm up early. I've got everything cleaned and packed because I've I've only got a few days really to do this. Um, I had, uh, I had seven days because I needed to fly out. Mm -hmm. and I get my bike loaded up. And the first thing I do is I drop it in the garage Mm -hmm. and, uh, I get under it and pick it up. I'm like, man, this is a heavy bike. And then I roll North. Um, I get to Willow and that's where my rear tire blew. And I had to do my, my trail side repair, get all that back together.
0: So this is, this is the studs working their way into the tire. So, so what happens? What makes them work their way in just heat? So those studs are an auger
1: style stud and they were very, very aggressive. I was basically riding on the tips of those tungsten carbide studs and they heat up and they try to work their way into the tire. Eventually, about a hundred of them worked their way in and I lost the tube. The tire basically was cut in half at that point and I had to rely on the uh, on on some strangers to pick me up and take me. Uh, back into town where I purchased a new tire with a little more meat on it and some new studs that were less aggressive. And now I'm running on unproven studs, uh, 327 miles north of Fairbanks.
0: So you left your bike sitting on the side of the road while you went in for a tire?
1: A rural post office. It was like uh uh, like a pawn shop that also seemed to accept mail.
0: It's really a strange situation, but it was, it was fine. <laughs> I love those kind of things. So, and and what is it that, um, like how did you end up stopping that from happening again? Uh, I actually just
1: kind of hoped that it didn't happen again.
0: This is part of what you get when you do studs on a, on a big bike and ride it that fast. Yeah, that's
1: right. I, there was no, uh, even the company couldn't help me. They had no idea. What to do for that distance uh, With that heavy of a bike I had no problems with the front tire It was totally fine The rear tire though The the problem wasn't Not getting enough traction The problem oftentimes was too much traction um, oh, wow. If you let the bike lug at those speeds With that much traction You would just kill it and drag the studs along It would, it would stop the engine um, it, it would stall it out from having too much traction hmm. Uh, so it was, it was, it was definitely, it was definitely strange. Um, but the smaller studs, they seem to work and they actually, the studs worked fantastic all the way up the Dalton and back.
0: Wow. That's, and you said you took a drill with you to install them. How long does it take you to install those studs on the back tire?
1: About three or four hours. Ooh. It, it, it was a lot. You have to do them one by one. And in total, there was 450 studs on the bike. Oh, yeah, That's, so pulling them out to reinstall them on the new the new tire, and it was very cold.
0: You pulled them out and reinstall, I thought you were putting new studs in. I was,
1: but I had a mix of studs on the rear. I left the the long studs in the center pattern, and I pulled the small studs off the sidewalls, used the small studs in the center, and used other small studs all around it. Oh, uh, I see. Trying to figure out your pattern, and I just moved from one tire to another, so I had a different different uh, lug style. And ultimately it it worked well. The studs (laughs) actually worked very well.
0: So this is day one. How many days are you going to be out on this road?
1: Uh, I had planned on six days, giving myself one buffer day Mm. and I got my bike ready and I actually drove it back to my house to start over again the next day.
0: Oh, I see. Okay. So how did that go?
1: uh, It was somewhat sad, but I was still determined and the next day I just loaded everything back up again. It felt better that day and I started going and I made it to Fairbanks that day on studded tires, um, through a couple mountain ranges, the Alaska range over Healy and Cantwell. And that's when I hit 25 uh, for the first time.
0: Mm.
1: Um, the bike seemed to be doing fine. I felt kind of bolstered and ready to go. And, uh, I made it to my friend's house he fed me and, and, and got me ready for the next day and I was ready to set out.
0: So what was it like riding through the mountains on the bike? Like, how does the bike handle?
1: I, I had zero problems with it. I was, I was excited. The bike was doing very well. You really have to uh, do your, your peg weighting. It, it's just all about your feet, keeping yourself directly up. Cause you know, those studs are right in the center of the tire, like I had them all around, but I don't feel like I needed to do any, any aggressive twisties at any oh, speed because I, right. I knew my, my traction was all right there. You're right, yeah. right. Uh, yeah. It was exhausting. I've done that ride before in a day and it's, it's, it's a long day, but very doable. By the time I got to where I needed to go, I was, you know, uh, I was, I was ready to, to go to bed for sure.
0: How many miles is that?
1: Uh, About 330 miles. I think it's like 327 miles. It's an exciting trip. It's beautiful. And in the wintertime even, uh, just so different. All kinds of different things to see. There's gas stations, though, every, I don't know, 50, 60 miles. So Mm -hmm. you're pretty good. At the same time, um, one of my fuel stops was Denali, Denali National Park, and the city of Denali at the base of the mountain, obviously. And it was closed up completely shuttered and snowed in snow drifts that you couldn't even enter anything. It was, it was closed. So I had to skip it and make it to a a little city called Nanana.
0: You mean just because of a a weather storm? No,
1: uh, it's closed for the season. It was closed for the season. Yeah. A lot of those seasonal kind of rest stops are closed and, Mm. and being able to get fuel is, uh, is dicey at best sometimes. So it was, it was cool, but I made it there. It took me a bit longer than normal. Um, I ate a couple big meals along the way and that was great and made it into Fairbanks with plenty of time left in my day and got my bike ready. Everything dried out and I I was feeling pretty good about it. And how about you? Were you
0: warm that day, that first day?
1: I was pretty good. My feet were kind of cold and I was working on uh, pumping my entire body, like how a, a fighter pilot pulling G's would to get blood working into my extremities. And that seemed to be working well. The hardest part was... When you got into anywhere warm, into a service station, into a restaurant, whatever, you got to strip all of your clothes off completely, Mm. which is an undertaking because, you know, they say if you sweat, you die. Yeah. And uh, I just, my feet were the worst. They would sweat and then they would get cold and then they would just be cold for seemingly forever. And that turned into a a bigger issue the next day.
0: Mm. You needed Pearly's Possum Socks. That's what I'm told (laughs) anyway. Okay. So day two, you're going to leave your, you're going to leave your buddy's place. So what, what happens in day two? Uh, everything
1: was going well. I had a nice breakfast and I'm rolling out. It was very cold. It was negative 20, negative 25. It was as the sun was coming up. Um, the sun comes up in the Arctic unlike the equator, (laughs) the equator. It just seems like somebody shuts the lights off. Um, The sunrise in Alaska, especially in the mountain ranges, seemingly takes uh, like three hours before you can actually see the sun. So you're just deeply, deeply cold. So I'm cold and I'm riding up and I get to this, this kind of famous rest stop called the Hilltop. And this truck driver comes in, not knowing that I'm also a truck driver, this truck driver comes in and sees my bike and goes, are you seriously gonna ride that? And just gave me the nastiest look. I was like, yeah, I'm going to go up the hall road and I'm going to go as far as I can. And and she goes, well, you know, uh, people up here aren't going to like that very much. They have kind of an ownership over that road. I was like, well, you know, I'm a truck driver. I know how you guys move around a bit and I'll stay way out of your way. You know, thank you for the information. I was trying really hard to turn like a sourpuss into my friend mm-hmm. um, and, and it just wasn't working. So I get out of there kind of, uh, kind of a little sad because— Like, man, well, maybe this just isn't the place for me. And then I started heading north. Um, There's a hill right outside called 12 Mile, and it it takes you onto the Elliott Highway, which is the highway that is still paved but very icy and lots of ups and downs that eventually gets you onto the Dalton Highway. And the Dalton Highway is the halt road, the only road that takes you to uh, Dead Horse, and eventually uh, you can go from there to Prudhoe Bay. So... I began what was the longest and most arduous part of the trip.
0: Why? What went wrong? Just a quick break. I want to tell you about two things, and we're going to come back with more. Stay with us. Go light, go fast, go far. That is Giant Loop. Giant Loop again, a company started by a rider. The difference, the Giant Loop difference is the way they make the bags for the job. Unnecessary weight and bulk are removed from the design. So instead, you focus on a lighter, simpler approach that serves the purpose without all the extra buckles and straps that are so common on these kind of packs and gear nowadays. Giant Loop is well known for their loop-style bags that mount on any bike, no rack required, and they have handlebar bags, tank bags, and some incredible-looking panniers. And if you're looking for a great fuel bag or a bag to haul your water in, this is really important on the bike. They have liquid reservoirs that are beautiful. They're really well-made. Perfect for motorcycle adventures. The website is giantloopmoto.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Giantloopmoto.com. You probably already understand how important it is to use your foot pegs for controlling your motorcycle. What you may not realize is just how much advantage you will have with IMS Products foot pegs. IMS Products is very particular on how they design and build everything. They make a lot of products. And you notice I said design because IMS designed these foot pegs specifically for adventure riding. These are designed to shed debris, hold your boots planted without tearing them apart, they're also designed correctly so that when you install a wider peg, you don't ruin the boot sole angle for your shifter or cramp the brake lever. None of this you're gonna notice until you actually use these pegs on your motorcycle. And then you'll understand what the design is all about. IMS Products has been around since 1976. Their pegs are made in the USA from cast certified 17-4 stainless steel. They're warrantied for life. imsproducts.com is the website Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com Why? What went wrong?
1: It was 247 miles to Coldfoot. And Coldfoot Camp was where I was going to spend the night. I started riding up and down. It was a lot slower than I had assumed. And by the time I made it to the Dalton Highway sign... Um, I stepped out, pulled my helmet off and it was so cold that my glasses snapped in half. So now I don't have any glasses and I really do
0: need glasses. Oh no, you, you didn't think of bringing a spare set of glasses.
1: Yeah, no, I I didn't. I just assumed that, that my one was going to be fine because it always was. Mm -hmm. And it broke right at the bridge and a van full of tourists rolls up to come see the Dalton sign And I'm standing there still shocked and I'm in this alien environment and I'm very, very cold and uh, I hadn't realized it but I'd kind of already sown my own destruction as it were in the last couple days by not drinking pretty much any water as all my water was freezing um, inside my jacket even. I stood there for a minute and I was like, well, I mean, I can still see and it's still light so I'm going to keep going. And... Um, I ended up making it 150 miles up the Dalton highway to the Yukon river. When my clutch went out,
0: went out, what do you mean? Went out.
1: I, uh, they have these pull-offs on the road to let trucks go by, or they can sleep there, uh, while they're doing their reset. I pulled off one of them and it was drifted over more than normal. And the only thing I really can't drive in is that, deep, deep snow. I'm I'm good with sand and I'm I'm good with a lot of things, but, but the snow, you just can't get any traction. You do just get stuck there. Um, I was worried about dropping the bike and not being able to pick it back up again because I wasn't feeling the best at that time. I was very hungry and I was really thirsty and I didn't realize that the dehydration, um, made the capillaries in your hands and feet shrink up and it wasn't allowing blood into my hands and feet. So my feet were getting really cold and parts of my hands I couldn't feel anymore. So I wasn't too worried about that. And uh, I tried to turn around in one of those spaces. And when I went to go put it in gear, it just wasn't dropping in into first. It wasn't doing anything. And I felt a mush in my clutch. I have a, a hydraulic clutch. It's like, oh my gosh, what happened? Did I break my my clutch line or what, what what's going on? So I checked my my fluid reservoir and it was low. Um, I didn't have the proper screwdriver to get into it. So I just took out my, my knife and I used a pair of pliers and just snapped the tip off my knife. It broke off like an icicle. It was, it was, uh, it was really cold. It just, the steel broke. Wow. I jammed it into the screw and opened up the, the reservoir and I poured a little bit of my engine oil in there. Cause I was like, well, I'm just gonna have to flush it out later on. So, uh, put that in instead of the mineral oil and it didn't seem to help. What it had turned out that happened was I lost my slave cylinder for my, for my clutch, which is a known, mm-hmm.
0: um, kind of a known, a known KTM thing. thing, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is. But that bike's got 69,000 miles on it. So I assumed if it was going to happen, it was going to
0: happen. Yeah, it should have already <laughs> happened. But is it, I guess you were in the extreme test for it.
1: Yeah, I was. So I had no clutch. I knew that I could get going uh, without it. And it was actually pretty easy on ice. You, you uh, start the bike, you can get into neutral by just kind of forcing it. And then you give it a lot of gas and then you slam it to first and just peel out and <laughs> and push your way through the ice and eventually you're on the road and then it's not your problem anymore. <laughs> um, so I made it about 18 or 20 miles north of that to the Yukon River. And I was starting to get a little kind of loopy and just worried about things at that point. And, and I decided that it just wasn't worth it there. And, and I turned around.
0: You called it quits. Um,
1: about 30 miles south of the Arctic Circle.
0: So 30 miles, you were 30 miles from your destination. And, but obviously you felt that this was dire.
1: Yeah, it was getting, it was getting weird. My mind was getting kind of fogged over. I knew that I could do with one or two little mechanical things, but I didn't feel like I was in a position where I wanted to try to change a tire or anything like that again. Cause I, I had still unproven studs that only had, you know, 300 and some odd miles, I guess, maybe 400 miles on them at the time. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And uh, something someone told me before I left was that the way up is optional, but the way back is mandatory. (laughs) And I decided that this is, this is as good a place. I could almost see it. And I knew that the road got easier from here. It dropped off and got flat, but uh, I had only planned on going another, maybe 50 miles that day anyway, to Coldfoot camp. And I knew that when I turned around, I had another 150 miles back to Fairbanks. So my day had actually gotten a lot longer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I started. And I started up and down those hills. And that's when the dehydration really got to me.
0: What happened to you? Uh,
1: I was uh, riding and I was riding along and everything seemed to be going well, except for obviously my cold feet. And I started hallucinating. Um, I started seeing people at the top of each of the hill and they were like waving me on saying, you know, that, all right, come on, you can do it. You can do it. Wow. And I, I sped up. That was the fastest I ever went. I went 65 miles an hour on, on straight ice roads, um, which is like riding on, on groove payment. It's, it's just, it's uh, groomed ice. So you can imagine that it's it's just large, deep grooves. Um, so it's pretty brutal.
0: It has to be cold too.
1: It was desperately cold. That was when I hit my lowest temperature, um, which was uh, about negative thirty-five. But at sixty miles an hour with a thirty-mile-hour headwind, because it's it's also very very windy up there, and they're they're just blowing snow on the roads. It's drifting there's no trees anymore you're you're in the high arctic like like as far as elevation wise goes you're up there and there's just weird little trees that look like mushrooms now from all the frost gathering on them um and i'm seeing these people that are that are telling me that i can make it and i get excited because i haven't seen people in quite a long time let alone anyone who's telling me anything encouraging and i would get to the top of the hill and realize that they weren't there on like three or four different occasions they got me the hill people And, um, I would just break down and start crying in my helmet and those tears are freezing to my face. Um, my mask, it looks like a fighter pilot mask, like a respirator inside the outlet ports were completely frozen shut. Um, so I wasn't getting air into my helmet either. And I couldn't see very well. And it was just one thing kind of after another. Um, so I stopped and, I was like, okay, well, this is the time. I'm going to thaw out some water. I'm going to drink something. I'm going to eat something. And the one thing I didn't think of was my Jetboil isobutane stove. It uh, doesn't work at those temperatures.
0: Mm. One of the downsides and, of butane.
1: <laughs> yeah, pretty serious downside because that mm. was part of my, uh, my survival plan. Um, and I kind of just broke down there for a minute. um but I knew that I had to keep going because there's kind of no other choice. It's like, what do you just you get back on the bike and you keep going or you die here because there's, there's not really anybody coming. And if you just pull your hands out for a minute, um, you're
0: getting burnt. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was weird. This, and there's no traffic really. There's not much traffic around you.
1: There was a couple truck drivers, but I found out that they all kind of come in waves because they're of their timing. Um, I was not in a wave where there was a lot of people and I was beyond the point where tourists are coming up to see the hall road anymore. All uh, uh, right. It was now I do have an uncle that drives that, that road, uh, six days a week and he was coming South from there. And I knew if I needed anything badly, I could, uh, I could flag him down in his truck. Um, but he was still going to be another, uh, that day. He was still another day and a half away. Oh, wow. So I didn't really, yeah. You're have not going to wait options. on the side of the road for that. Yeah. So I kept riding. Eventually I got to a place where- Hang on. Were- sorry.
0: Sorry. Just back up here. So you, you didn't get your stove going, obviously, and you didn't get any water. So again, your water's oh. still frozen, like you said, inside your jacket. That's surprising. Um, but it just it says how cold it is out there. And so you still don't have anything to drink. I assume nothing to eat or very little. And then you're off again.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I had, I had nothing. I was sitting at one of these pull-offs, just wondering what to do and not really having any, any, any options. Um, I ate some, uh, some chocolate wafers, uh, but the rest of my food was, was pretty well, uh, either frozen solid. So brownies freeze completely solid at that temperature turns out. Good to know. And <laughs> yeah. And, uh, the rest of my, um, of my rations, I guess I brought with me were good high calorie freeze dried foods that require hot water. Mm -hmm. Um, as well as I had some, some fish that was in oil that I knew I could get to, but I didn't really feel like eating like some oily mackerel on the side of the road right now. (laughs) I, I also didn't realize I couldn't pull my hands out of my gloves. I had the hippo hands and I had uh, big mitten liners inside of it, and then mechanics gloves inside of those. And I had to always keep my skin somehow covered up a little bit to the point where my, my hands were actually quite warm inside there because the grip heaters, but the glue would come undone on the grip heaters and would spin around to where uh, the wire wouldn't allow my throttle to go up until I spun it back to the other side. And so now I'm, I'm getting what, what to me at the time seemed like like fueling issues or throttle issues that wasn't allowing me to go very quickly up hills. And mm-hmm. I wasn't able to really downshift very well without just slamming it uh, until I found out that this is what was going on with my grip heaters.
0: Why did that happen with the grip heaters? Is that a, is that a result of the cold?
1: The, actually, it was the heat from the grip heater inside the big mitten melted the glue Holding the grip heaters onto the handlebar.
0: So it's because your mitten is so insulated that the grip heaters, the grip is getting too hot. So it's hotter than what it's designed to be.
1: Yes. And That's so I would weird. turn my grip heater off and then the glue would set back up again and it was stuck in that position. So I had to sit there and reheat it again uh. to spin it back around. And then I just couldn't use my grip heaters. Ooh. So that was, yeah, that was that. So. I'm there on the side of the road, not quite sure what to do, but I knew that I just had to make it back to town. I rode another 150 miles total from where I had decided to turn around and made it back to uh, the city of Fairbanks uh, a couple days early without any plans of anywhere to stay. And all of the hotels were booked up.
0: Yeah, now, so. now that that's not just a funny th- n- note because that that's pretty scary because you have no place to stay and it's winter. It, it feels, and the
1: sun is going down. Mm. It, it feels so exposed and not knowing really anybody in town. There's not people that you can just call for help.
0: Yeah. It's not like you can sit in your vehicle and just put the heat on. You know, if you're, nope. if you're driving a car or truck, you'd sit there and put your heat on and maybe suffer through an uncomfortable night, but, but you, yep. you've got no yep. place to go.
1: And I couldn't really go anywhere into the heart of the city because I didn't have a clutch. I couldn't do stop and go traffic. Oh, My right. boots are so big. I can't slam it into neutral very quickly. I'm worried about rear ending people or just dumping the bike. Every time I come to a stop, if I can't get it into neutral, I just have to grab the brakes until I kill the engine and hope that I can start it again.
0: <laughs> wow. And, and do you feel at this point when you, when you're going to go around and you're, you need help at this point, do you feel like there's some sort of stigma attached to this? Like in other words, in other words, why would anyone want to help you? Because you're doing something that many people will just consider stupid.
1: No, not at all. <laughs> <I, laughs> did cross your mind. <laughs> I was very happy with where I came. And I was just elated to be back in town because I went and I went to a parking lot in front of a Barnes & Noble, went inside, got a cup of coffee, sat there. Um, I could plug my phone in because the cold had just absolutely killed the battery. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was really worried about my phone at that point because I have a new iPhone and it's got my satellite SOS on it because of course I left my inReach in Arizona, uh, not assuming that I was going to do anything that required an inReach. So I had no satellite messenger with me at the
0: time. Which would have been useless because you had it in your pocket and it got cold and shut down.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was toasted.
0: Yeah. Hence the lithium battery issue right there. That's it. Correct.
1: Correct. I had it all in my little vest up front trying to keep it close to my core and it was still, Mm -hmm. it was still too cold. So I'm there. Eventually I made some calls and a friend of a friend of a friend had a room. I made it over there and sat at their table after stripping off all my clothes. They asked if I needed anything and I couldn't even ask. I, I didn't drink any water. I didn't eat any food. I just sat there um, pretty much in shock and then fell asleep.
0: Were you and, cold at that point? I mean, is the hypothermia setting in?
1: I, my core was great. Um, two of my toes had frozen together, but I think just like a, uh, a quick freeze when I pulled them out of my boots because it hadn't nipped my toes at that point, but they were stuck. Hmm. Um, my hands were burnt along the tips and along one of my palms. You know, when you, when you ride around, you kind of float your thumbs a little bit. And, uh, and I think that something got in there and I had almost like a, it looked like a chocolate mark or something on my hand where it burnt. Mm -hmm. And my, my, my tips, as soon as they started warming back up again, were, you know, just uh, excruciating, excruciatingly painful. Yeah. yeah. Um, And then when they finally did get warm, it felt like somebody took uh, like a a two by four and beat the tips of my fingers. Mm -hmm. And I was just kind of sitting there in shock, Um, but happy I made it back. So that was, uh, that was really great. Um, I didn't eat or drink anything until the next morning. And that was uh, actually when the bike shut down completely and I couldn't get it started.
0: <laughs> so the next morning you go to start it and, and it's, it just won't turn over.
1: Actually, it fired right up. I had no problems oh. and I rode into town. I had breakfast with my uncle who had at that time made it into town. And I went to start it up and ride it back down to Anchorage, another 300 and some odd miles. I made it to a major intersection, killed it, which, you know, it's just because I couldn't get it in neutral. And at that point, it started throwing a, uh, a code. Uh, and it's a kind of, it's a non-digital one. It still has a digital display, but um, the code was just a light, like an FI light. And I, I knew that it could just be from cold. It could be a mass airflow sensor. There's a Lambda sensor for the heater coil on either, um, either cylinder. It could have been the, the, the battery might've just given up the ghost. So I'm sitting there in an intersection. I pulled it off to the side and started pulling things apart, trying to get it, uh, trying to get it going. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually I just was able to make some calls and, Somebody brought a snow machine trailer. I got it up on the trailer and it's still on that trailer in Fairbanks, Alaska, sitting at a buddy's house. And now I'm two weeks on the other side of it and it feels like nothing, nothing's any different. Um, It was just shock because of uh, uh, an extreme situation and being, you know, very dehydrated and cold. And uh, I'm doing much better today.
0: So your, your, big, your big issue that you're dealing with there really had nothing to do with the bike. It had to do with dehydration, something you didn't prepare for, didn't plan on, didn't think about in advance. Why would you? And that's, that was really your problem.
1: Yeah. And so now I know exactly what I need to do to finish this up.
0: <laughs> you, you, you're actually going to try this again?
1: Yeah, I have to now. Um, the bike's already there. I've already done the anchorage portion. It's good studs. I'll get the parts, um, I'll get it sorted, and I'm guessing 2024, I make it all the way.
0: Chase, I would highly recommend that you get some Pearly's Possum socks (laughs) for your next ride. Okay, I'll let you know how they work. Thanks so much, Chase. Thank you very much for having me. was chase eckert from his airstream trailer no doubt getting ready for another carnival we've got some photos of chase in the show notes along with a link to a couple things that chase mentioned one was the, the company that makes the studs for motorcycle tires the other one was oliver solero another cold weather rider that we interviewed some years back about his adventures all of that in the show notes on our website AdventureRiderRadio.com. that about wraps up another episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it special thanks to our producer elizabeth martin and you of course for listening to the show thank you very much for that now we have another show if you're not aware of it called adventure rider radio raw comes out once a month we have another show coming up um in a couple of weeks i think Actually, it comes out on the 21st of each month. So you can count on finding Rob the 21st of every month. Now it's a separate subscription, a separate feed is what they call it. So go to wherever you're finding your podcasts and make sure you subscribe to both shows. And if you haven't done it already, we would love to get a five-star review from you for both shows. If you listen to both of them uh, or whichever one you're listening to. (laughs) Anyway, if you could, that'd be great because that helps other people find the show. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin and I will talk to you next week. O'tier.
1: And I'm Tim Notier.
0: And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.